A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Last Drinks Podcast, a new conversation about how to navigate an awesome life without alcohol, reframing the cultural norms around alcohol in our lives, and hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Hey friends, welcome to Last Drinks. I have been on the hunt to find an addiction specialist to unpack alcohol, how harmful it is, why we drink, what it does to us and how it affects our thinking and our brains. And I have found the best in the biz. Dr. Buddy Lokuj is an addiction medicine specialist doctor based in Newcastle, Australia. He's a clinical researcher in the field of addiction and a conjoint lecturer at the University of Newcastle. He's got a medical degree, a master's of public health from Harvard University and a PhD from the Australian National University and dual certified in addiction medicine and public health medicine with the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Buddy is also a certified recovery coach and the co-founder of Calm Lion, a recovery coaching training organization working to make recovery support tools wildly available around the world. For more, you can see calmlion.com.au. This chat is real. This chat is deep and it will answer some of those very broad, unanswered questions that we have surrounding alcohol, why we drink, why it is so prevalent in our society, and why it makes us do silly things. I do want to also mention that this episode and the opinions of speakers on it are not intended to be a substitute for medical or psychological treatment or evaluation. We recommend you see your doctor for a health check first if you want to quit drinking alcohol. Withdrawal symptoms if you are physically dependent on alcohol can be severe and in some cases life-threatening. The information that Dr. Buddy shares with me in this episode is so important. I loved our conversation, so please enjoy Last Drinks with Dr. Buddy. I think when it comes to matters of sobriety and sober curiosity, there are a lot of labels. There's gray area drinking, there's alcohol dependency disorder, and there's addiction and, and terms like alcoholic. And I think they all have different inflections and they mean different things for different people. But the biggest one that I kind of struggle, I think, to separate is dependency and addiction. Can you clarify what both of those things are? Yeah, look, I think that's a really good question because it's something that has been debated and different organisations um, have different um, definitions and different meanings to the term. So consistency has been an issue, which is why in 2016, um, the American Psychological Association, in their manual, they moved away to a different term called substance use disorders. But I think the umbrella of addiction is essentially when a there's a repeated behavior that um, continues despite harm. And then dependence might be a more contained uh, word generally that uh, relates to where there's physical or emotional dependence on a substance of psychological dependence. And so 
Um, I think the two terms are related. Addiction is the overall arching term, I would say, where there's harms and what we're working on. And dependence is to do more with the body's reaction to a substance, whether or not there's harms. But again, different people have different definitions. So that's why we're moving away from that to substance use disorders. And I think that that's really important to clarify because for me personally, when I was looking at my relationship with alcohol, I realized it was having a significantly negative impact on my life. But when I looked up the term alcoholic, I didn't define as alcoholic, but I knew that I needed to stop drinking. And so for me, it was really tricky to figure out what I was, but I knew I wasn't sober, but I didn't feel like I was an addict. I was somewhere in the middle. And I think when I realized that for me, it just wasn't working, whatever that looked like, I needed to change it. That's how I came to my sober curiosity. And I think for anyone listening who isn't quite sure whether they're dependent or addicted or somewhere in between, the point is is figuring out what it is for you. And if alcohol is having a negative impact in your life, hopefully you can find the tools within this framework. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's and and it's a bit like food um, dependence or addiction. It's something that everyone has some experience of. I think it's a universal experience. We can talk about that, but um, and we've gone through so many different you know ideologies trying to explain what it is there was the moralistic there was a lot of judgment and we're moving more and more away from those unhelpful ways of thinking about addiction or dependence to understanding what's going on how's it impacting the individual the society and and how can we live our best lives and and that's i think the the yardstick and you know, terms like addict that creates a noun out of an action or a behaviour. Um, all those things that potentially can stigmatise, um, lead people to feel worse about themselves actually, I think, can be part of what keeps people stuck. And so moving away to understanding this as a behaviour, a habitual pattern, and understanding the neurochemistry, the neurobiology, which really is survival strategy and a learning mechanism that's been hijacked by substances that have really high dopamine hits and and when you start understanding that unpacking it and moving towards a healthier relationship um, and living the best life is an easier thing to do what are some of the signs that people may be struggling with their relationship with alcohol where it may be having a negative impact and is something that they might need to reframe yeah, look, there's a, a couple of different ways that you could approach that. Um, there's a clinical, which I can talk about, and where we sort of have a, a checklist of criteria, um, and it's very specific because it means we then tailor the approach to that. But more generally, at a population level, you know, um, um, there's the NHMRC guidelines, which is the safe guidelines based on research of what we uh, no, at the time, and in, in 2020, NHMRC said if you're drinking more than 10 standard drinks a week or more than um, four in one occasion, that's going to increase your lifetime health risk. So that's one way to look at it and to assess whether my drinking is harmful. But more at a psychological level, I think there's indicators, um, and people know, um, 
know this, you know, when you start to feel uh, shame, when you start hiding your drinking, when you start making, changing things that you're doing, missing social commitments, um, waking up feeling bad, um, and then there's more specific things like, you know, urge and cravings, um, the, and then tolerance and withdrawal. So it's a spectrum, but starting with those early signs can be the sense that this is now starting to take control. So addiction is essentially where there's a um, ongoing use despite harm. So there's a, a loss of capacity to stick to what you want to do intellectually, um, and also then harms related to social harms as well as physical and mental health harms. Yeah, one of the red flags for me was definitely this, I guess it was a vicious cycle that I got trapped in where I would go out and I'd have a few too many drinks and I would wake up the next morning and I'd go, oh, I am not drinking again. And then by that afternoon, I would be at a bar or at a friend's house with a beer in my hand and I would be drinking again. And I guess it was this sense of there was no accountability, like my self-worth wasn't big enough or strong enough for me to be accountable to the promise that I had made myself that morning in that moment of despair and desperation and just feeling like rubbish. And that can be a really vicious cycle because then you get trapped in the shame of it, which is I want to stop doing this thing but I'm doing this thing again and I don't know how to talk about it and then I feel bad so then I'll just drink because I feel bad and it just continues and I remember feeling so trapped in that and, you know, not really understanding how to kind of get out of it, out of that that cycle. I'm interested, Woody, to know from you the harms of alcohol because no one, I feel like no one told me how dangerous this substance is. Like you just kind of start drinking with your mates in your late teens or your early 20s and no one really explained to me how dangerous and harmful it can be. And and there's a, I think there's a a layered set of harms, like the, it can harm in so many different ways. So I'd love to know just from the work that you do in the field that you're from, if you could kind of explain, I guess, what some of those harms alcohol can lead us to are. There's the acute things that happen when you um, take your first drink, you know, um, a drink, standard drink increases blood alcohol by about 0.02 or 0.015. And um, by one or two standard drinks, we start to see physical effects, um, relaxation, starting to get disinhibition. And then as you go higher and higher, um, it affects coordination, can affect vision and all the way to sort of coma and death. And then there's the long term when it starts becoming habitual and um, you start to develop, the, the brain tries to come back into a balance or homeostasis and and you get adaptation which then causes problems so that in in those ways the harms are the physical um, the urge the prioritization of alcohol which I think has huge impacts in terms of our work and uh, social and emotional well-being um, but then specifically alcohol is a toxin so we know it increases the risk of ca- all the cancers of the 
gastrointestinal system, mouth, throat, um, esophagus, stomach, liver, and bowel, as well as breast cancer. We know it impacts um, things like sexual dysfunction, increases the risk of infertility. We know it impacts um, the brain, which is an important one, especially as we're getting older in the midlife. Um, things like the body's um, distribution of water and things like that changes, and so. Alcohol can be a toxin for brain cells at any level, we think now. And that means we're increasing the risk of dementia, increasing the risk of um, alcohol-related brain damage. So there's a gamut of harms. The unconscious thing that's happened at a societal level is that insidiously it's become um, promoted as something that's as part of socialising and also part of everyday life and then there was there was some questionable research that said there were health benefits and that that was sort of promoted you know glass of red wine might have some health benefits in 2020 the lancet and um, large studies have looked at that data and now they're coming back to realize actually there were errors in the way that data was analyzed that there probably isn't any safe level of alcohol so really this is it's not to make judgments necessarily about what individuals are doing, but it's to say just like a lot of misinformation out there, we, what you're doing and what we need to do is correct that so people can make informed decisions. Oh, you articulate it so well and it blows my mind that there are so many, oh, what a great word, a gamut. There's a gamut of issues that alcohol can cause and there's a gamut of increased risk when we consume alcohol yet it is in the western world at least on every corner there's a bottle shop in every suburb there's a bar or a hotel or a pub that has you know shelves and shelves of this stuff that it's it if you're 18 plus it's freely available you can go wherever you please and you can find alcohol. You can consume alcohol. It's everywhere. So let's talk about what it does to our brain because I I think that the more awareness there is around this really important information in how this substance of alcohol affects our neural pathways our decision-making, how it hijacks our dopamine systems. I think the more articulate we are with this information, uh, the the better and the easier it's going to be for somebody to maybe make a decision and go, oh, maybe alcohol isn't the right thing for me because it's completely messing up my brain. I think this is really a really valuable sort of start of anyone who's um, starting to think about the alcohol and wanting to make a change is to understand some of the neuro circuitry of the reward system and why we might start doing something that's so um, detrimental um, or potentially detrimental when we look around and see the harm. It's basically hijacking a survival um, tool that has very long evolutionary sort of adaptation that when it's the dopamine system that's a system really designed to uh, make us remember things and motivate and and to act to get up in the morning to seek food primarily so um, 
it, when when we eat uh, food, particularly where there's a high calories, you get a release of dopamine, and that dopamine causes a cascade of effects around the brain that sort of tells us, remember this, this is where food is. And in the in in the early days, that was a survival advantage. It, it, it's how you um, you know, um, and and we can use that, for example, to train our dogs, you give them little treats, it gives a dopamine hit, they then start to want to repeat that behavior. And after a while, you can take the take the treat away, and they still do that. So that's operant conditioning. Pavlov's theory of classical conditioning, I think. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm actually, well, I was, I was studying psychology in my spare time um, last year, Buddy, and I remember that from Psych 101. Exactly. So you can get um, dogs to roll over, which is something they don't necessarily want to do. You can get um, dolphins to jump up and take treats, you know, and, and perform tricks. And then you can take it away and they still continue doing that. That system is, an, uh, so that's basically a learning system. But all kind, and, and it, you get dopamine release when you have um, um sex, which is important for procreation and the survival as a species, but also alcohol releases it, um, sugar releases it. Um, and then as you go up into the more addictive substances, methamphetamine releases it thousand times sort of the normal level. And what happens is there's three things you need for a habit formation, a trigger, and that might be hunger or stress. And then you need a behavior like um, having a drink or going for a walk. And then um, you have a reward, and that's the dopamine system. So, unfortunately, um, alcohol, because it's so ubiquitous, it's so easy at a time of a trigger like stress or a joy or whatever um, situation, you have a drink and then you feel some initial, there's a, there's, um, uh, uh, you know, it's a CNS depressant and also stimulant. You might feel a bit euphoric in the first 20 minutes of taking a drink. Over time, that res dopamine response to alcohol decreases and flatlines. And so you actually get less of the positive effects. But then what happens is the negative effects. And the negative effects are because there is a system in the brain um, called uh, the opponent system, which is that for everything that goes up, something must come down. So when dopamine, a reward chemical is released artificially at high levels by using alcohol or something like that, you will get a equal and opposite and sometimes more severe low. And people who use it chronically, we know it increases the stress responsiveness in parts of the brain like the amygdala. And you actually find um, there's a thing called hypercatephia, which is the you get more sensitive to negative emotional states and you start this pattern where you're actually drinking to prevent that, to try and relieve the distress of the sort of um, withdrawals and the negative feelings that come about from long-term alcohol use. So that's why it happens. People start with the initial reward system, it gets into place and then it goes subconscious. The, human brain likes to preserve its resources. So it'll um, push things back and you're, you don't even realize and you've had the first two drinks after coming home. You have this sense that you're doing it because of relaxation or stress, but 
but it's the system that's actually become sensitized to negative emotional states, to stress, to a life which has ch challenges. And over time, you find that resilience decreasing, you become more sensitive. And the reason that so some people um, get into uh, the further down the track, I think everyone is susceptible to it. But the reason uh, some people go further down is very individual and it can be due to environment. So if you're living in a dormitory where everyone is drinking and um, at, when you're at a age like teenage years where your frontal part of the brain, which is a new part that regulates and stops and tells us if we do this, that's going to be the uh, how, not a good way to uh, go. That part doesn't mature till 25. So if you're in a dorm and everyone's drinking, um, you don't need other genetic and other predispositions for the, the likelihood that you'll pick up something up, start using it um, uh, occasionally and slowly it becomes that system kicks in and that you start um, habitually doing it. Um, others, uh, there are genetic predispositions that we know of. Um, there's also unprocessed grief and trauma and um, um, is an important part and, and stress um, um, sensitivity. And then things like um, chemical imbalances. So uh, psychiatric illnesses, ADHD, we have some evidence that there's more sensitivity to, to sort of progressing down that pathway. So one or all of these things can be at play for an individual. Um, and I think then it's just a matter of circumstance, situation, and whether you, the balance of recovery resources and recovery liabilities, what, what happens and where you're sitting in that spectrum. Um, and I think this is what we can use then to now talk, to talk about recovery and how to get out of this cycle that is a powerfully reinforcing cycle once you're in it. It's so interesting to hear it explained like that because I feel like, and you can't generalise, but I, there is a, a sense of in your teens and your early 20s, you drink because it's social and it's fun and it brings joy and we're hanging out and it's all good. And, you it, you know, those, I guess, years are celebratory and, you know, no cares in the world and, you know, little responsibility. And so drinking can be, I guess, associated with up feelings and good emotions and fun times. And then, I don't know, like you get into your 30s and your 40s and she gets real. And I think there's almost this switch at some point in that 30-year decade or that 30-year age bracket where the drinking switches from fun and social to coping with just how real life can get and how tricky it can be and how overwhelming things can be and how big and complex our feelings can get because, you know, there's mortgages and heartbreak and miscarriages and divorces and there's there's also good things definitely in, in those years but things do shift and then if you don't really have a handle on your drinking or your relationship with alcohol, it then turns to your coping mechanism for all things and then that's where it becomes 
really problematic. You know, that's when you, you're looking down the barrel of long-term problematic drinking. You're exactly right. And, and I think it depends on, you know, that early um, years, ultimately the ideal would be to live in a society where this sense that um, socialising in the teens does not require alcohol, you know, and and that that being the norm as opposed to the norm now where we see in EDs, you know, um, hyper binging where where people, young people are coming in with, you know, 15, 20 drinks um, because of the sugar and other things as part of it. Um, so different stages of life, I think we need the strategies for early stages and then there's the more population health strategy. But as an individual, I think there's, it's a really fascinating process and one that I've, you know, captured my imagination, what I'm really interested and passionate about. But I would, it depends on who you talk to, you know, Gabo Mata has the trauma sort of realm. You talk to um, Johan Hari and he talks about community and connection being the opposite of addiction. Um, from where I'm sitting, I think there's um, five sort of, uh, resources that we can draw on and each person's will be different um, in terms of recovery capital and to try and once you're stuck in that habit to move to another one um, but I think the centerpiece of that is starting to bring back awareness so pulling instead of using willpower um, we know willpower doesn't work that's a newer part of the brain in terms of top-down regulation those more the older parts that drive habits and things like that and, and our motivation to go and seek food or procreate, they're much older and um, the newer parts go offline when you're stressed or tired or hungry. And so you can make the best plans in the morning, but by evening, you, you're, you, when, when, it's, um, when you're tired and hungry, um, it's a different system. And, you know, part of my work is looking at can we bring online the top down, um, the parts of the brain like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that's in the severe cases but in the general community if someone's trying to make a change there's the first thing is to bring awareness take it from a thing that's been now pushed down into the unconscious where before we know it we're sort of doing this pattern to sort of actually look at what is the reward in real time that i'm getting from doing this thing so if i'm tired and I'm driving home and I'm, I know there's three bottle shops to really slow it down and um, and to see, okay, what's coming up. It's, it's basically mindful awareness of um, each of the steps that I'm taking and then starting to question what's going on. And there's many ways that you can sort of learn that skill. Um, it's, it's one that a lot of therapies now are based on that coming taking things out of the subconscious, whether it's beliefs that um, that might be not actually true and starting to look at them and question them. And then through that process, instead of using willpower, actually using that reward system and realizing, changing that reward um, payoff, which we've misattributed from earlier days to be a high payoff. Now we've got to actually, we start to realize that's there's a huge negative payoff, not doing that intellectually, but doing it really in the moment as we're responding to these triggers and cues. Um, so that's a mindfulness-based approach. I think uh, that 
has a lot of value and there's more and more sort of online places you can learn to do that. The recovery resources I talked about, it's, um, you know, there's um, social recovery resources. So we know groups like AA and communities like Good Morning and others that bringing people together, sharing experiences, not realizing you're not alone. That's really powerful. Um, there's emotional and other resources. So for example, if, um, if we're stressed or sad, um, working or we've had a breakup in a relationship, you know, having going and getting support for those emotional areas. Um, there's physical things like walking, yoga, meditation for the mind. And then mm. a resource that I think we, we haven't utilized as much in the West is the, is there's um, spiritual resources that we can do. And I mean by that, not religion, but essentially having the sense of awe in our day or um, coming to see, um, finding our soul's purpose. You know, um, they Japanese talk about kokoro rashi, which is finding your soul's purpose. And oh, we've stumbled into uh, spirituality, which is, it's actually one of my favorite things to talk about. And I'm not talking about religion. I think in the West, I don't know, it feels like we're really reluctant to tap into ancient traditions and you know, the spiritual side of things so much, whereas in Eastern cultures it feels really aligned for people to have a spiritual practice, to be, to you know, to use mindfulness and it not just be a buzzword or a wellness thing. Buddy, do you know why there's this sort of hesitancy in the West it feels when it comes to having spiritual practices as part of our wellness? If you look at the history of medicine, um, there was a time when, you know, we were dying of diseases uh, um, like simple bacterial infections and then penicillin was discovered and suddenly one injection and, you know, you change the trajectory. Um, and then the medical model established itself as, uh, but it was very much rooted in, what science could, what what an experiment in a lab could prove, and and then there's been a big movement um, recognizing actually the so-called hard sciences. Um, you know, I have a PhD. The sciences where you can run experiments, they're not necessarily that hard. And and the soft sciences, the the mind body connection, um, connection to spirituality and to a higher um, sort of purpose and the power that those can have over not just the mental, but the physical. I think there's a, we're starting to reclaim that. Um, but there has been that uh, sense that we can cure everything through sort of rational, the left brain only. And now we're realizing how lopsided that is, you know, you have a world where we're depleting resources, but each step, each thing, each individual thing seems to make sense. But at, at the, when you put it in a broader context, it's actually ultimately harmful to the uh, species or to the individual. So spiritual principles, I think, are um, hopefully making a um, re-emergence. And in some ways, the West is actually supporting the, the work to bring back things like mindfulness and beyond mindfulness, you know, the ways we can use the mind and look inside to sort of um, to find uh, awakening. Um, I am part of groups looking at 
psychedelic assisted therapies that have a, a, a sense of bringing that wonder and oneness into people's lives. And that's very much now being driven in the, the West from the scientific as well as the um, community of people with lived experience and traditional knowledge. There has been this dichotomy that it's one or the other. And I think we're now um, realizing evidence is evidence. If it works, um, try it. If it works, then embrace it. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at Last Drinks Pod. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.